0: Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, raise a kid, teach a class, and get a job. Uh, Since the last time that uh, I came to you guys on this podcast, I have had a child. Well, my my wife had a child. I am just taking care of it. Um, And it's been a lot. Uh, The kid's been really healthy and good. Uh, She is uh, really active and uh, very chill temperament, which is super lucky. She sleeps through the night. We get a ton of sleep for new parents, uh, but it's also a big change of life. And it hasn't led to me having a lot of space to, uh, you know, write my dissertation and think about all the other things that I should be thinking about. But I kind of have to right now because tomorrow I start to teach a class. Um, This could be the very last undergrad class that I ever teach in my entire life if I don't happen to get a job or or some amazing postdoc in the next year. And so it's a little bit of a bittersweet moment for me because I like to teach. I I am devoted to it. I I, I think it's a a really fun thing. And I, I just don't know whether I'm ever going to get the chance to teach again. Um, but what is this class? Because you know, this class is going to form the backbone of the next season of Making a of Historian. If I manage to get enough time to actually record episodes, uh, the class is is, is something I designed myself. It's called Work and Play in the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Industrial Revolution should be pretty familiar to people who've been longtime listeners of this podcast, and I think it's kind of floating around in the you know general ether of, of the historical events that educated people kind of know about, um, but if you're brand new to the podcast and completely forgot what the Industrial Revolution is, I, I, I would sum it up as you know big technological changes that took place in the late 18th and early 19th century in Britain that really, really changed the way that people made things. You know the, the 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 images that I bring up to explain the Industrial Revolution are big coal spewing factories that have you know mountains of black smoke coming out of their smokestacks and you know people working at gigantic iron machines and you know children uh, 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 sweating in 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 sweatshops. Uh, you know th- th- this is the Industrial Revolution and. The important thing to, to to note is that alongside these technological changes, these changes in the ways that people actually made things, there were changes in the way that people lived their lives. Uh, there is a change in who owned the products of work. There's a change in who owned the tools that people use to work. This is what Marxists talk about when they talk about the control of the means of production. Before the Industrial Revolution, the means of production, the tools and, and the raw materials might be owned by, you know, a lot more people. After the Industrial Revolution, the means of production were owned by capitalists, either, you know, individual people who would own the factory and the bricks and all of the big machines in the factory, or increasingly, as the late 19th century turn of the 20th century, these things were owned by consortia of capitalists, the joint stock companies, you know. Anyway. Now, when we talk about the Industrial Revolution, we often just talk about this economic stuff: the, the changes in technology, how they changed how people worked, and how much money they got, and how much things cost, and all of that. And that's incredibly important. But I'm interested in the Industrial Revolution for how it changed the way that people lived their everyday lives, how this change affected people on a more everyday level. And I wanted to explore this in my class. And I thought that a way to get into this question of how the Industrial Revolution changed you know, people's everyday experience of their lives was through two big categories that are really important. And they kind of, you know, define each other. Work and play. Now, I, I think that these are really important uh, to understand uh, our own lives today. How we got to be in the place that we are right now in 2020. Now, let's start off with work. You know, w- work uh, for me is is one of the big. <laughs> Problems in my life. I, when I'm stressed out, it's it's usually about work. It's about whether I'm doing a good job at my work, whether um, I'm gonna succeed at my work, and, and, and I'm this is you know something that is similar to a lot of people in my generation. And at the same time, the, the things that I enjoy are often defined by the gaps that work leaves behind we define or tend to define play or leisure as what we do in the spaces in between work and uh, the, the things that we have to do that, 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 that are simply necessary for replenishing our animal energies, you know, so, so play becomes this, the activities that human beings do that are not work and are not sleep and are not eating and are not caring for kids and are not, you know, sleeping or shitting or, or any of those things that we need to do. It's, it's, it's the things that are optional. And both of them, like, like, I think for me, the the things that, that really drive me are work and play. They're, they're, they're things that I, I, I if I'm going to spend a, a sleepless night ruminating over something, it's probably going to be either, you know, what I said at work or what I said at a party. But, you know, for the, all the importance of those two categories of work and play, um, they have a history. And I think it's a history that that we often just kind of forget about they they seem that, to be ideas that are just kind of etched in stone you know work is always work play is always play people always work monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday and have saturday and sunday to 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 goof off that's all just natural um but the existence of of our patterns of work and play are the result of a historical process, and it's a historical process that I think, you know, really uh, uh, becomes critical in the industrial revolution. and why? Because during the Industrial Revolution, we get things like the eight-hour workday, the weekend, the summer vacation, uh, and even more details like that. It's, it's during the Industrial Revolution in Britain that we get the rules of soccer, the decline of blood sports, and boxing, and, and, and bull baiting. All of these things that seem normal now, like the seaside holiday in summer, became normal at the same time as the Industrial Revolution was happening. So my, you know, wider goal of this class is, in talking about the history of these two categories in the industrial revolution, we put into perspective work and play today. That we we begin to think about how we spend our energies, why we put so much, you know, value and onus on on what we do in work, and 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 how play has become, and at the same time, kind of you know, evacuated of, of a lot of creativity and become something that we is commodified and turned into a spectator sport. So the classes is split into roughly three different sections. And, you know, the, these sections blur into one another, uh, First, we're going to be talking about the Industrial Revolution, and we're going to just be defining what that is and how that changed the way that people worked. And then we're going to be talking about uh, the particular kinds of things that people did for work in the Industrial Revolution. That is the second section. We'll be talking about a change in how people use their time. We'll also be talking about, you know, the rise of the professions, uh, domestic labor, and, and the work of children. Finally, in the third section, we're going to be talking about Uh, the things that people did in their spare time, how people learned to make a light of their time, um, including drinking, sports, toys, and sex. So I'm just going to raise the curtain a little bit and tell you a little bit about my struggles in designing this class. Now, as you might have noticed, the class doesn't proceed chronologically. We're not, you know, dealing with a decade-by-decade progression about these two big themes. Instead, we're digging into each theme, you know, kind of granularly. In one class, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, professional people in the middle classes. And and that's going to stretch from like 1770 to 1850. And then we're going to talk in another class about uh, uh, like uh, uh, sex work. And that's going to talk a, a lot about, you know, the 1850s. But there's not as much you know, historical time. There's not like a, a beginning and a middle and an end with the class. The class doesn't begin in 1770 and end in 1850. It's kind of all over the place. And that I'm, I'm worried about because that's kind of one of the things that historians do is that we plot out events in, in, in chronological narratives. And this class is more kind of like a, a tour of a, of, a, of a particular theme. And there's another problem that's you know about this this organization that's not just that it violates some kind of convention. It means that there's a kind of of, of thing missing. That's missing a chronological comparative aspect. You know, we we're unable to to really compare the before and after when we're just getting a rich description of a particular set of practices. And and because of that, I'm opening up this first week of classes with a description of the before, of what life was like and, you know, work and play and technology before the Industrial Revolution. You know, understandably, it's kind of a cramped, uh, uh, topic. There's there's a lot to get through in a in a single week, and I hope that my undergrads forgive me for for how rushed it is. But I think it's necessary to give this kind of comparative edge to the rest of the stuff that we will be thinking about. So. Let's just talk about what Britain was like before the Industrial Revolution, and we're talking roughly the the short 18th century, maybe uh, 1688 to 1770. If if you really want to pin down um, the the uh, dates like that. Now it's important to note that that talking about the Industrial Revolution like it's just a a massive explosion that changes everything irrevocably is is wrong. That's not how this thing happened. We now understand that even though there were a number of big uh, uh, technological innovations that that might give a sense of a, a, a momentous occurrence, really economically, the development of the Industrial Revolution was incredibly slow and incredibly long. It was incremental and generational. It wasn't explosive. So, you know, this change started sometime in the 17th century. People started to work a little bit more and make a little bit more money and slowly improve their tools and, and start to, you know, substitute certain kinds of energy-rich uh, 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 materials for labor. And, and slowly and slowly and slowly, this all compounded over the course of like 150, 200 years. So, so that's important to note at the outset. But let's just talk about some of the, the, the big social conditions that were happening at the time that's going to help us make sense of this time period. Before the Industrial Revolution, even though Britain was one of the most heavily urbanized places in Europe, it was still predominantly rural. Most people lived in the countryside. Most people did work in, in, in some kind of farming for some period of their life at, at some time. A lot of the people who lived in the cities uh, weren't, you know, didn't think of themselves as, as people permanently living in cities. Tons of people would go to the city, especially London, for a part of their lives, like maybe their mid-twenties or their, their early twenties to save up some money, you know, learn a little bit of what people did in the big city, get a taste for the cool things that people did in London, before they would take that money and that extra knowledge and go back home to the countryside to set up a household. So the rural was really, really important. And, and when we I think about the 18th century city. There were, you know, rural areas there. Like in the 18th century city, there were animals living in London. There were there were fields in London. When we we hear a place like Saint Martin's in the Fields, which is a, it's a it's a field. It's an actual field. Now it's all, you know, concrete and 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 big buildings. But then it was it was it was trees and rolling hills and cows. There was an, a much greater rural aspect. But that doesn't mean that everybody just was a farmer. Rural people didn't just do farm work, and they didn't just own farms. They didn't just, like, dig in the dirt and make potatoes. No, rural work was a lot more varied than we might think. Uh, For one, there just wasn't uh, always work to do on the farm. Uh, Sometimes the, the grain had to grow, or the cows had to chew their cud. And during that slack period, sometimes people would you know, do industrial work in their houses. This is, you know, small-scale craft industry. You might, you know, have your family spinning wool or, or weaving or, you know, making lace or making pottery or doing any number of small little things in the house all year round, the work picking up when there wasn't as much work to do in the fields, and uh, slowing down when there was a lot of field work to do, or when the season wasn't right for it. And that is a really, really important thing to note about everything in this time period, is that the natural world matters. The season matters in a way that is just not as, as, as visceral to us today. The pace of work and play and everyday life was marked drastically by the changing seasons. The demand of of farm labor, of planting and harvesting and, and eating was marked by the availability of food, water, and light even this 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 domestic craft industry that I was describing was really dependent on a certain kind of weather. You could not weave when it was dark out because you couldn't see what you were weaving with. And to make it light when it's in the middle of winter in the 18th century, you needed to burn candles, which were really expensive. And if you weren't rich, you had to buy tallow candles, which smelled like beef and had were really smoky and were still expensive. And it wasn't worth it to light tallow candles and do your weaving. So you needed to weave when there was enough light out and when it was warm enough that your fingers could be dexterous enough to actually do the weaving. So everything that people did was really, really related to the seasonal changes. And this is really important to remember when we come to talk about the play of the Industrial Revolution, because a lot of the things that people did during their, their slack times, during their celebrations, was affected by the, 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 the constraints in the natural world. And we're talking about Britain here, which is an extremely northerly latitude. Uh, it's warmed by the Gulf Stream, and so it's a lot more temperate than you think. But anybody who's been to Britain in the summer or winter can tell you is that it gets dark really really early in the winter and it stays light really really late in the summer I, I I did research in in Britain during the winter and it was awful because I trudged to the archive at like seven and it would be still pitch blackout and really gloomy and I'd leave the archive at five and it would still be pitch blackout. I, I would have lost the entire day of sunlight in the archive which is just really. Miserable. So in Britain, which is really, really northerly, these seasonal changes in light matter a ton. So work was was different. And it wasn't just different in in the time that people spent in work. It was different in, in what people expected to. Get from their work, a lot of times, yeah, work would would get a wage like like we have today, but that's not necessarily the only kind of work that people were doing. A lot of people would farm for themselves, or they would uh, be doing craft labor for a piece rate. You know, they would get a particular amount of money for each uh, you know lace handkerchief that they made. Um, or people would be working for uh, uh, some, some in-kind transfer. You might have somebody uh, doing some harvesting so that they could get a little bit of wheat for themselves. Or, or people might work uh, uh, in particular times for, for what are called perquisites, which we shorten to perk, grazing rights, firewood, uh, or the opportunity uh, to gather the gleanings of, of a crop to go into the field after the harvest and pick up uh, what was left behind. And there were people, of course, living in cities, working and doing something that was completely different. There were craftsmen, professionals, lawyers, clergy. Uh, there were people who made their living on the sea who would, uh, you know, work shipping things and buying and selling things and fishing and smuggling. But the important thing that to note in all of these is that wage labor was less common. Work hours and the nature of work were highly variable depending on the season and local customs. And the, the unit of work, the, the the group of people who were working together was generally. A lot smaller than it was today. Usually, uh, you know, it was just a, a, a single household, uh, not meaning necessarily, uh, you know, mother, father, son, uh, grandma, but but the people who were living under the same roof, or or or, or you know that number of people, five, six, uh, a dozen, um, twenty would be an incredibly large work unit, and only very rarely, in some very specialized places like the 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 docks at Portsmouth, would you. You get very large industrial organizations. Most things were really small. So that's work. Let's talk about play during this, this, this period of the 18th century. Um, let's talk about this from, from how we might celebrate the year in the seasonal calendar. We can start at Christmas, uh, December 25th, which is perhaps one of the most important um, seasonal celebrations of the year. And, and Christmas in the 18th century, in many ways, was like Christmas is now. It's a blur. Uh, it's not just one day. It's not just December 25th. But, but 18th century Christmas lasted a long time. In between, It started with, with a day called St. Thomas's Day, which was on 21st of December. Um, and it ended in the first week of January. It was like Saturnalia for the the Romans or or winter holidays for us now. A weeks-long holiday in the middle of winter when the normal course of life was suspended and people engaged in play and visits and feasting and present giving. It was a holiday filled with blazing lights. If you had candles, this would be the time to use them. Hospitality at home, you'd invite everybody to your home or you'd go and make visits and eat and drink and dance. And importantly, it was a time when people ate meat. One of the reasons why Christmas was Christmas was that it was one of the biggest slaughtering times of the year. Why? Well, let's just remember again the the constraints of the season. In the middle of winter, there's not a lot of food for animals to eat, and in the middle of winter, it's cold, and so you can slaughter an animal and uh, it will stay fresher for longer. Christmas particularly was a day of eating meat. It, if you were really poor, it might be one of the, the big days of eating fresh meat for you. I, I was looking through a bunch of sources for Christmas and I found uh, somebody, some Scots guy talking about how much uh, his local community slaughtered on Christmas. And he said that on Christmas Day, quote, it is said that they have been known to kill 17 beeves, 500 sheep, 70 calves and a thousand geese. All on one day—that's um, a lot, a lot of meat. But you know, for all of that play. Christmas was also a solemn religious day. It was one of the three times in the year when, when people in the daily course uh, of their lives could take the Holy Sacrament, the other two being Easter and Wood Sunday. And so it was often a, a time of, of, of some intense uh, uh, religious self-reflection. If we're going to take the Lord's Supper on that day, you would, you would do a, a stern inventory of yourself and then maybe get drunk afterwards. Now, Christmas was also really notable for what is left out. If you did an 18th century Christmas, you would you know, be shocked because there would be no Christmas trees, no Santa Claus. Um, you might get some presents, but they wouldn't be wrapped up in boxes and it would be a lot less of an important thing for that holiday. Um, you would also be kind of shocked because uh, there would be people begging and, and you might be expected to beg. It was a big time of year for uh, the poor and apprentices and young people to go to their betters and say, hey, give me money. They would take a special box, which is called a Christmas box, uh, around to uh, uh, the people that they served and, and their customers and say, hey, give me money. It was a little bit like Halloween, except with money and, and instead of candy and, and actually threats of violence and, and a lot less dressing up. So that's Christmas for you. But that's not the only celebration in the 18th century. Let's just jump to to the warm times of years. Late spring and early summer were key times of celebration because uh, there was less work between the spring sowing and the summer harvest, and there was more light uh, for people to uh, experience the day with. And in this time, there were a wide variety of local festivals. The big one for our rural people was the annual parish feast that was known as the Wake or the Revel that might be held in honor of the parish's patron saint. This was held in different times and different places. Uh, We don't need to get into the details. Uh, Very similar to the Wake or the Revel were the fairs. The fair is kind of like a temporary stock exchange where people would come together to buy and sell often a particular kind of merchandise. If, if you're a fan of economic history, you might read a lot about particular medieval fairs like the Champagne Fair. Uh, but there were lots of small fairs that weren't really that important for world history, but were important for the local economy um, held throughout the summer. Um, there were fairs for horses, you know, horse trading, sheep, dogs, cattle, uh, cheese, hardware, leather, merchandise, uh, and, and there were even hiring fairs, fairs where people would go uh, to get hired for the year. And you might be wondering why on earth are we talking about temporary stock exchanges uh, and understanding the history of fair, uh, of play. But fairs were multifunctional. There was a lot of commercial activity, but they were also like fun fairs today. There was, you know, food and drinking and theaters and, and freak shows and music and sports. Uh, uh, I, I, you know in a, in a book by Emma Griffin called England's Revelry, she describes a 19th century handbill that advertises a fair including, quote, Punch and his wife, conjuring players, wonderful doings, a merry dance, a tiger, and get this, a bear and a monkey, and and so fairs were, were were a lot of fun. And because there were a lot of fun and happening in the summer, what happens at fun things in the middle of the summer? Well, fairs were also an important marriage market. If you were a young man-servant or female domestic servant on the prowl for somebody to date, you would go to the fair to do bad things with your fellow servants. Proverbially, women often lost their virginity on a May Day fair. And at these fairs and wakes and revels, you would get the, the kind of stuff, you would get a, a country fair today, like not exactly a contest to see who'd sc- who could sculpt the, the, the tallest tower out of butter, but similar stuff. You would get sack races, smoking matches, pudding eating contests. Uh, there were uh, contests where people would try to chase greased pigs. The prize would be the pig. And there would be contests where people would climb up greased poles. Now... There was also a set of folk holidays that took place on particular days of the year. A big one was May Day, which you might know because of the, the weird uh, uh, ritual in which people would dance and, and wind a bunch of ribbons around a maypole. Um, but there was lots of local variation about May Day as well. In, in London, May Day was the holiday of the milkmaid. And just let's take an aside here and describe the the connotation of milkmaids in the 18th century. Yes, milkmaids were people whose job it was to to, milk cows and then take the milk and open pails around the city and give it to uh, sell it to people. But there was also kind of a sense that they were sexually available in a cool way, or maybe cool in the 18th century. The, the milkmaids themselves probably did not think of their, you know, reputation for being sexually available as a good thing, but that's beside the point. Um, so during May Day, the milkmaids would gather a, a bunch of silver plate um they would borrow it and they would make it into big pyramids, which they would adorn with ribbons and flowers. Um, And they would carry these throughout the city uh, instead of their usual milk pails. And as they would carry it, they'd go up to their customers and they'd ask for money, not for milk, but just to sing and dance and, and and to, you know, to, to to get a a tax from the people who they would be serving throughout the year. Later in the 18th century, it began to be followed by troops of other, other young people who would just kind of make a big day out of it, Uh, especially uh, 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 poor chimney sweeps who eventually would start to dress up in girls clothes and follow the milkmaids making noise with their shovels and brushes and all the while asking for money. And there were a number of religious holidays, like Easter, and uh, Shrove Tuesday was really big. I don't know exactly what Shrove Tuesday is, I should look that up um, before the undergrads ask me. Um, I do know that for some reason Shrove Tuesday was beloved of Apprentices, Uh, Apprentices really liked it, and it was marked by the eating of pancakes um, and the playing of football. Uh, There was also a cycle of of political holidays, Uh, Guy Fawkes Day, which we know from V for Vendetta, where people would make effigies of, of the notorious Catholic terrorist, Guy Fox, and you know they'd blow up fireworks and get drunk and probably uh, uh, talk bad things about the Pope. Um, but there were also a number of other political holidays. Uh, the restoration of the monarchy was was celebrated. Uh, the birthdays of the royal family were celebrated. And these weren't celebrated everywhere. Guy Fawkes Day might be more common uh, uh, throughout the country, but but was only in like particularly politically active cities that you might get people celebrating a holiday like the Prince of Wales's birthday. These would be marked by the ringing of bells, by bonfires, and by public feasting, usually at the expense of the political elite. Now, what's what what matters in all of this? Um, I get really lost in the pleasant details uh, about these stories of popular recreations. I find them all really fascinating. Um, I am resisting telling you about the game Throwing at Cox, Okay, I can't resist. I, I'm going to tell you about the game throwing at cocks. This was one of the big games of the 18th century. You would you would know how to play throwing at cocks if you lived in the 18th century. Uh, it varied as 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 most of these practices did throughout the country, but the general idea of throwing at cocks is that you would get a chicken and you would chain the chicken up to to something and and, and restrain it, and then people would make a line and they would pay a little bit of money and they would get a, a a thing a stick to throw at the cock and if they hit the cock guess what you won the cock um, this was a big game people loved it people loved throwing sticks at these dumb chickens and then winning the chicken and then eating it okay but but throwing at cocks was was, was gigantic it was it was a really well-known and really popular holiday even children would play it 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 was like you know the football of of, of the 18th century. It's easy for us to get lost in these charming details. But I think that it's important to to bring out the the generalizations, to, to, to really see what distinguishes play during the long 18th century. Now, just like work, play was really affected by the seasonal cycles. Natural pressures were really, really defined when play could happen and what people did when they played. There were stretches of the year when work was just not possible, and that was a nice time to get together with family and friends if you could. And there were different reasons why work wasn't possible, because it was too dark or too cold, or because the natural processes that you relied on for your work were not going on. Uh, If the grain was growing, you couldn't work in the fields. If you worked in a water mill, you couldn't work in the water mill when the water froze. And these slack periods gave opportunities for people to play. And the same natural constraints allowed people to play in different ways. In the winter, when it was dark, people uh, took the opportunity to light their houses up. When it was cold, they took the opportunity to slaughter animals and to, 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 to preserve that meat and to feast in, in, when it was dark and cold. In the summer, when the lights uh, nights were very long and people had a lot of free time, they would uh, do what we did and they would get drunk and dance in the middle of the street. The other thing to notice about the 18th century was that the details of these popular amusements varied a tonne. It varied in character between urban and rural areas, for one. So in urban areas, this play was often a lot rowdier, it was often a lot bigger, it was often a lot more regular, and it often got to be the concern of a lot more people. People got freaked out about the chimney sweeps going from door to door, begging in the 18th century in a way that they wouldn't get freaked out about rural celebrations. In rural areas, these these were quieter they were more deferential, and they often were, were weirder. They, they varied in detail more. And, and this actually makes our study and understanding of these practices a, a, a lot more difficult. If you if you know a little bit about 18th century popular amusements, you might know that there were often um, really big football matches, uh, soccer, a thousand people in which the entire town would spend the entire day, you know, kicking the football from one place to another. But that only happened in you know three four places that we know of it it probably didn't happen everywhere it was probably weird at the time but this local variation was was incredibly important finally it, it it's it's important to point out that both with work and play that, that these things that i'm describing were not Some sort of like forever tradition that that had always happened from like old Mary England up to the 18th century and then were just suddenly sundered in the, in, 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 with the advent of the steam engine. No, these things were always changing. Um, on the side of work, the long 18th century saw many big changes, like the steady decline of the urban guilds, as the national market knit things together, the increased efficiency of of uh, and the increased immiseration of a lot of rural work due to the steady enclosure of common lands, and the increase of, of spare time that people had uh, that they were were spending in craft industry, not in play. So the so-called industrious revolution. All of these changes happened really slowly, and they, didn't happen all at once. On the side of play, uh, uh, the practices that people had been doing were under a lot of pressure from radical Puritan reformers, who thought that lots of the things that people were doing in Wake's Week and in their revels and in the churchyards and in the fairs were really, really bad. They thought that they were drunken, they thought that they were irreligious, they thought that they were sacrilegious, they thought that they were in need of reform and they shouldn't be happening, and a lot of times they succeeded in stomping out these local traditions, and a lot of the 18th century traditions that we have were not survivals from some ancient past, but were conscious recreations of traditions that that had been stomped out by Puritan reformers in the 17th century. Uh, You know, it it seems with that rant, I've just undermined the entire message of my course. Uh, I'm saying that work and play were always changing. Well, why focus on the Industrial Revolution then? Well, I, I'm going to show you that the changes that occurred with this slow industrial revolution were really radical, even though they were slow, even though uh, work and play had always been changing. One of the big things that we're going to be looking at is the matter of scale. Sure, work and play had been changing all the time, but kinds of changes that work and play went undergrowth in the period, say, uh, between 1770 and 1840 were much, much greater. This was not a question of Puritans knocking down the Maypole in a couple of rural villages. This was a question of a complete reform of the way that people spent their entire lives. In that, a big shift is that from rural to urban. And within the shift, a kind of more profound shift from a world where work was dominated by the natural world and the seasons, to a world where work can kind of ignore the seasons and take its own path. One of the big changes of the Industrial Revolution is not efficiency, it was the fact that with the industrial revolution and the advent of coal-powered machinery and uh, cheap lighting and cheap heat, that people could ignore, at least the cold and the dark of winter and work when they weren't able to work before. And this was really, really a drastic change in a world where play was marked by natural processes that allowed for a a kind of natural slackening off of of work. After the Industrial Revolution, we moved from this this place where where people were kind of all in it together because of their their common experiences being subjects of of a, a sometimes difficult natural world to a time when people could think of themselves as individuals who had greater control over their environment. And that meant that the way that they worked and the way that they played became a lot more uh, conscious and a lot more isolated. At the same time, people started to work and play in a lot more similar ways throughout the country. Over the Industrial Revolution, we see a really really profound consolidation of practices of work and play. On the side of of play, this is most striking. It is during the Industrial Revolution that we have the development of sports with really rigid rules. This happens first with cricket, but the thing that really matters is rugby and, and, and association football, which gain their really solid rules in the 19th century. Gone is the time when every single Scottish village had its own rules for curling and they would do some weird sort of sport with a stick in a bag. No, during the 19th century everyone knew that it was cricket season and everybody knew what the rules of cricket were and where to get the things that you played cricket with and everybody read about the big cricket players in the newspaper and who was the best and who beat who. It became national instead of the 18th century story, which is a matter of intense local variability. And so just to close, I I, want to pull out one of, I think, the biggest messages of of this discussion of of work and play in the 18th century. I, I think that here we see the big change of the industrial revolution, not necessarily in in changes in in the ownership of the means of production, although that would be really, really important. I think that the really big profound change of the industrial revolution was that it, it separated work and play from the natural world it separated our our experience of gaining our subsistence from natural cycles and it separated as well our experience of 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 celebrating our free time in our lives from similar kinds of really really palpable natural processes Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I may very well be back next Tuesday or next Monday uh, if I manage to get my act together to make another episode. If so, I will see you then. Uh, we will be talking about the Industrial Revolution and just going really deep in depth into it. So it might be a short episode because we've dealt with it so much on this podcast. I have a lot of people to thank. As always, I have to thank Duncan Barton for our image and Jonathan Lear, for our theme music. If you like the show, tell your babies, tell your mothers-in-law, tell your fathers-in-law, tell your brothers and sisters-in-law, tell everybody that you know who listens to podcasts. Uh, I have a relatively small listenership and I would like it to be bigger. So if you could do that, that would be great. If you also like the show, tweet about us, share us on Facebook, Uh, do those things with media that you like to do. Um, I will speak with you guys next week. Uh, Always check out the Facebook group, which is on Facebook at Making of a Historian, and check out the website at historian.live. Thank you very much.